and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. There's a podcast that I love, and if you're not listening to it already, you should be. It's called Art Slice, and it's this amazing duo talking about art and art history, but it's not like a lecture. It's so fun and spontaneous and irreverent, and at the same time, it's super smart and well-researched. They've done amazing episodes about Duchamp and Klimt and Goya, but they also go off the beaten path. And they've been doing this series lately that I love about colors. So a few weeks ago, Art Slice published an episode all about purple. And I mean, it really is all about purple, from milking mollusks for purple dyes to Byzantine porphyry to the Muppets. And then in case that wasn't enough, and how could it be, they invited yours truly to join in for a bonus episode about purple in my field. And you might be thinking, wait, isn't Ben a silver specialist? What could purple possibly have to do with silver? Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. And to tell you what I mean by that, today we are bringing you this bonus, bonus episode of Art Slice crossing over with Curious Objects. And so, without further ado, here are Stephanie and Russell and Art Slice. Listeners, today we will be discussing patinating alloys <laughs> with Ben from Curious Objects Podcast. Ben, welcome. Ben. Welcome. welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Long overdue. Yeah. Yes. yes. We've, been, uh, we've been going back and forth. It's, uh, we've had some snowstorms. Oh, so. my God. <laughs> Thank you, Ben, for for being so patient and yes. rescheduling uh, with us like four times, five times. It seems I like know. something like that. Too many, too many times. You listen for the you know we're we coexist in this like tiny community of art related podcasts, and I love it, and I will do anything for anyone in this little shared shared world of ours. It's very oh, small, yeah, yes, yeah. It is. But I'm still discovering new shows like yours, so mm. that that was great. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, Ben. Can you tell us and the listeners a little bit about what you do every day? Yeah, so <laughs> I do a lot of things every day. Okay. I, as you mentioned, host a <laughs> podcast called Curious Objects about the stories behind antique objects. It's mostly decorative arts oriented, but we've gone into the flat art world mm -hmm. uh, from time to time. Actually, we have an episode coming out about a painting by the Beatles, which I'm oh. super excited about, which has a lot of purple in it so okay. maybe apropos did all the beetles paint on it or a specific all four beetle? of them oh wow yeah. okay yeah. we gotta we gotta see this <laughs> even though i think only two of them went to art school so the other two were completely unqualified to okay. paint but they had the audacity to do it anyway love that <laughs> um and then in my um uh in my non-podcast life i am a specialist in antique silver mm. and i work uh, with a gallery called shrub soul which is based here in new york city it's this hundred plus year old family business specializing in really in in silver and sort of mm. the highest end old silver. And that's anything from, you know, your forks and your spoons and your knives to your candlesticks to your giant candelabra and trophies and anything you can imagine that you could possibly make out of silver, we do it. Nice. Silver is my my first antiques love, and it's the area that I'm really uh, sort of a, a connoisseur in. But I love anything old that has a story behind it. I love the way that old things connect us to people and places and ideas that are distant from ourselves. Mm -hmm. So what what got you into this field of like, I guess it's kind of research. It's also kind of gallery work. It's almost like museum adjacent. 
what what uh, what made you choose this pathway? It was a complete and utter accident. I <laughs> like had the best no things. idea I yeah. wanted to do it until I tripped and stumbled and fell into it. I this is not something I studied in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to write about antiques, mm-hmm. and I thought I'd try to get a job in the business just to learn a few things before mm-hmm. going off and. I, you know, I wanted to write a series of essays or a book or something about Southern antiques in particular mm-hmm. as a yeah. lens to look at like, you know, culture and, mm-hmm. and history and transformation of the American South. Wow. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize was how hard it was going to be to get a job in a field where I had literally no qualifications <laughs> or background or experience or connections or anything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I spent a lot of time knocking on doors and getting these really strange looks. And then one night I was at a bar mm-hmm. and I got to chatting to the guy sitting next to me at the bar and he asked me about my work. And I said, well, I'm trying to get into, into the antiques business. And he said, well, that's funny. I'm an antiques dealer. Oh, wow. And I said, what? what? Are you serious? He gave me his card. It was the real deal. We hit it off. He hired me and um, he turned out to be a specialist in antiques. <laughs> oh, nice. Wow. So he took me under his wing and, you know, in this, in, in the antiques world, like if you want to learn about stuff, if you want to be a connoisseur, Mm -hmm. like you can read every book that's ever been published and get like 5% of the way there. Mm -hmm. And the other 95% of the way is looking at things like Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and thousands of objects. And then even more important than that is talking to other people who Mm -hmm. have looked at thousands and thousands of objects for decades and who learned from people before them and before them is very much an apprenticeship model. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, working for for this guy, Tim Martin, was really an incredible way to to get my feet wet. And then I found out that it was really a pretty cool line of work with, you know, the, the beauty of the objects and the history, but also the detective work, the sleuthing. Oh, that's cool. The, yeah. the intrigue, the fakes and forgeries <laughs> and the, the, you know, swindlers and everybody trying to fool everybody else all the time but uh you know knowledge is power and it keeps mm-hmm. you on your toes um i researched provenance for a i think it was a 15th century credenza italian credenza and i mean i'm sure you know you can just get lost in hours and hours of research just following <laughs> yeah. that one rabbit hole that actually leads to nothing but you know what it was super fun so it was like worth it so i totally i totally get that research yeah, aspect of it yeah Wait, what did you what did you find out about the credenza that it was owned by this family that then sold it to that one. And at cer- at a certain point, it just, there's nothing there. So then you okay. just have to really write about like what's in front of you, which is, you know, the credenza itself. <laughs> but yeah, at yeah. some point there's just not, there's no documentation. Sure. Yeah. The trail ran cold. It did, but it was fun. It was worth it. <laughs> is another big part of it actually like interacting with the objects? I'm under, I, I think too, like mm-hmm. being able to like physically like touch them, like. Uh, you know <laughs> is yeah. that is that a part of it yeah i mean at least in in my field that's such a huge fraction of it mm. and it's tough like you know more and more online uh, auctions are just happening online mm. and mm-hmm. so you look at the pictures on the website and you're like that's pretty or that's not mm-hmm. and then you bid on it but then you get it in mm-hmm. the mail and you're like oh shit there's 12 things wrong with this that i <gasps> couldn't tell from the pictures oh my God. and sometimes it's minor you know, condition issues that don't make such a difference. But other times it's, you know, you discover that the whole damn thing is a fake or that there's oh. some like major, like illicit restoration or repair Okay, that like totally craters the value of the object. Like either you need to see it in person mm-hmm. or you need to be willing to just like take a huge risk mm-hmm. and live with the consequences. 
Yeah, it's not some sort. You you got to get their like home address and like track them down. <laughs> they, they sell you. A yeah, forger. I uh, <laughs> it shouldn't say too much about that. But oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just say we've got Marco and Guido on speed dial. <laughs> I love that you've got connections. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't know about your experience in the museum, but I, I guess like since our experience is so much in the museum, most of all of the objects that we would interact with, well, we actually don't get to interact with, right? They're behind glass. You have to like walk around them. Um, you get to observe them from certain vantage points. But I mean, I, I don't know, like they're not, they, they are like in some ways like very accessible in, in the way that like y- you can tell that this was used for something. But since it's so old or antiquated or just like an old uh, way of like i don't know eating or mm-hmm. <laughs> help me out here <laughs> like eating or drinking no you're good so yeah. like what what we would call well what is referred to as decorative objects so not paintings mm-hmm. not necessarily like your fine sculptures mm-hmm. right like um i don't know a tea set a sterling silver tea set mm-hmm. but it's behind glass and like and there's only so much you can see like is it well lit and where is it positioned can you walk around it like you know mm-hmm. 360 like it we yeah. are very it's not very accessible i think you already said that yeah like it is and it isn't it, it like in the sense that it's in a public collection so you can mm-hmm. see it yeah it's accessible but in the sense of like can it ever again be used for the purpose for which it was made the answer is probably not and i have to be a little i have to tread a little carefully here because i love museums obviously and like museums are some of our best clients and mm-hmm. and you know the the curators at these institutions do incredible work all the time and i love i mean i work a block from the metropolitan museum of art i nice. go there over my lunch break you know most days i've been there hundreds of times it's like my favorite place in the world that being said of their collection which is about I think it's 2.4 million objects, like a tiny fraction of 1% of those pieces are on display. Mm -hmm. And of that, you know, there's another tiny fraction that might someday be on display or that might be part of a, you know, a a traveling exhibition. And then there's another small portion that might be used by scholars for some purpose or that might have like connoisseurial value. Mm -hmm. And then there's the rest of it, which is kind of sitting around and collecting dust. Mm -hmm you can end up in some pretty fiery arguments about like what are these objects doing there and should they be there or not but the one thing that just kills me mm-hmm. and this is not just museum collections this is a lot of private collectors too is like like imagine Notre Dame right great great cathedral mm-hmm. everybody who goes to Paris walks into Notre Dame and they have this amazing experience but Notre Dame is like an incredibly important historical monument and of course having people trudging in and out of it all day long like subjects it to risks and Mm -hmm. you know it caught fire right i mean that's not related to tourists necessarily but it's like it is risky to have a a building like that in use Mm -hmm. and yet if you were to close notre dame to worshipers you know because it's too important to subject it to that kind of risk like you would be taking the soul out of it right Mm -hmm. and i feel the same way about a lot of these decorative arts objects there are some that are like too precious and delicate and valuable and you shouldn't, you know, you should be very ginger and careful in how you handle them. But for the most part, you know, like these things were made to be used. And if you're not mm-hmm. using them, they're losing something really important about what they are. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid of antiques. Like don't, <laughs> don't put gloves on. Don't uh, literally or figuratively, like <laughs> put it in your kitchen cabinet, take yeah. it out, you know, make your tea in your antique silver teapot and 
you know, pour it into your antique china teacups and drink it and enjoy it and get all the pleasure and satisfaction out of those objects Mm -hmm. that their makers instilled into them. So in some ways, like they're they're almost more accessible in some ways than than actual like quote unquote art objects. <laughs> like fine I don't, art. Yeah, like I don't think there's really like a huge difference in that, like because they are meant to be used. Which I think um, we we've talked many times about like art versus craft and how you know really there there's quite a bit of overlap there. So yeah, I really like what you're saying. Do you do you feel like there is a difference between looking at some sort of antique? And some sort of work of art? Is there any difference for you at all? Mm. That's such a it's a very difficult question. question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, excellent question. That's a brilliant question. No, it's it it isn't like it's interesting to think about because it immediately asks forces you to ask like what is this stuff for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what is a painting for? What is a what is a coffee pot for? Mm-hmm. Right? What is a pair of shoes for? And like these these things these objects and works of art, they fulfill many different purposes all at the same time. And it's easy to say, well, this is a, an aesthetic object and mm-hmm. this is a functional object, but that's almost never fully true. Right. I mean, even when you talk about about something that seems as clear as a painting, mm-hmm. uh, this is a work of art. It's an aesthetic object. It's meant to be put on the wall and like looked at. Well, yeah, but also like tons of paintings are there just to like add color to a room. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they're there to like provide a a, like pleasant distraction for your peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not necessarily always fulfilling the function of being some some like platonic ideal of a work of art. Yeah, yeah. So I I think the spectrum is very very fuzzy, and like every object that we use in our lives on a daily basis has an aesthetic component. Mm -hmm. And I think you know paying a little more attention to that is it can be really gratifying and can like increase our quality of life tremendously. And I realize I'm completely preaching to the choir here, but <laughs> but it's something that's often lost in culture and that, that the sort of distinction between art and craft is designed to like smother. Absolutely. That's a good word. I, re- I really like how you describe that too. Like art does have a function. It, it's it's something that we are are very aware of, but I think it it's, it's, it's almost like you can't say that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like right. devalues it or something like that. So, yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I, so you, you know, we, we've been talking about purple mm-hmm. and I was thinking, gosh, like, you know, I, I know some objects, some antique objects that have purple in them, you know, they pop up here and there. We talked about porphyry, mm-hmm. which I know you, you got into briefly. in your <laughs> Very <briefly>. episode, <laughs> which is awesome. But then I was thinking, like, I'm a silver dealer, mm-hmm. and silver, although it's not purple, generally speaking, <laughs> unless something has gone terribly wrong, um, there is actually a pretty strong purple connection, mm-hmm. and it takes the form of what we refer to as mixed metals mm-hmm. work. So, these are, like, 
works of decorative arts that are made not just with silver, but with other metals, uh, you know, and different types of alloys. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that goes back a long, long time, but it really starts to flourish in the 19th century. Particularly, the Japanese have a really strong tradition Mm -hmm. of working in mixed metals. So, taking uh, silver, but also iron and Mm -hmm. copper and, you know, all different combinations of these elements, Mm -hmm. you know, bronzes and brasses and whatever else, and gold and putting them all together into an object that can then be this wild, like, multicolored, multilayered thing. And in the 1870s, this idea, this like mixed metals style comes over to America thanks to Tiffany and Company, which, you know, we know as the like return to Tiffany, blue box, etc. Yeah. But like back in the 19th century, Tiffany was for a period of time, in my opinion, the greatest silver manufacturer in the world. They made unbelievable objects in an incredibly creative and imaginative way. And the, a big reason that they were able to do that and like take their place on the world stage as like a leading producer of, of decorative arts is because they were drawing inspiration from these international sources, particularly from Japan. Mm. Oh, okay. It was their design director, Edward C. Moore. And he started to put together a collection of just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of objects that were from Japan, also from Korea, from China, from elsewhere. Uh, across the east and then eventually from from the middle east as well you mm-hmm. know and persia and, and the mughal empire and india etc so he was totally fixated on this but it wasn't just you know idle collecting it was really purpose driven collecting because mm-hmm. he used this collection he actually put uh, these objects in the design workshop at tiffany mm-hmm. in, in downtown new york city and all of the tiffany designers were like interacting with these objects, looking at them, studying them, learning about their aesthetics and their form and design, but also about the techniques, the metalworking techniques that the Japanese had used to make these really wonderful works of of metal. And then copying them, really just like blatantly copying them, stealing (laughs) them. Um, It's crazy because, you know, Japan was totally closed until 1853. They Mm -hmm. were intentionally isolated and they had a wonderful decorative arts tradition that barely seeped across their borders at all. And then suddenly there's this incredible explosion and like Christopher Dresser goes over there and his first stop on his way back, he goes to New York and gives a bunch of stuff to Edward C. Moore Mm -hmm. that he had bought in Japan. And it leads then to the silver workshop at Tiffany becoming this incredible like confluence of ideas and styles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's sort of the context. You might wonder, like, so why, what does this have to do with purple? Because even copper is not really purple, right? It's like red or (laughs) orange. But they got really creative and they started using all of these like chemical processes Mm -hmm. to patinate, artificially patinate the metals that they were working with to create a huge range of colors. And so there are actually pieces from this period, from the 1870s and 80s by Tiffany that, you know, they have like large quantities of copper alloy, Mm. but then they've been, I guess, patinated is the word that we generally Mm -hmm. use, but it's like artificially colored in ways that create these like this wonderful range of like, you know, technicolor hues that they look like they have depth when you look at the object, you know, they, it's like your eyes are kind of seeping into the surface and 
seeing all these layers of material and color. Oh, wow. A small number of them are this like brilliant, deep, rich purple color that is just really magical. That sounds amazing. I'd love to see one of these in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can. You can at our shop or at the at the Met or at I think the St. Louis Museum has one or two. Okay. Oh. So All right. maybe Kansas too, City. That's not too far from have us. To look. Yeah. 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 We'll have to seek it out. <laughs> we were obsessed with this chocolate pot. This chocolate pot from Tiffany and Co., right? We want to describe it a little bit for our listeners and mm. <laughs> we're going to we're going to take a stab at it. And if you feel like you need to step in, please feel free to. Yeah, feel free to correct sure. us. The chocolate pot is made of silver patinated copper. It's got gold and ivory as well. This sort of mixed media of metals was very surprising to us. Mm. Um, and we had to zoom in really close because obviously we don't have <laughs> <laughs> we don't have it. Um, in front of us, but when I looked at it, I was like, "Is this the is this the right caption? Like chocolate pot? I don't I don't think pot when I first look at this. I think more of like a a kettle. Definitely, for me. <laughs> you're, you're gonna have to explain to us what a, what a chocolate pot is here in a second. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, please. Yes, the, it's got a metal body. It's got a silver handle, a silver spout, and it's also got some like silver patterning around the top half, mm. and then the non silver metal part. Is very purpley, which is what you described, Ben. The, That's, that must be the copper. The, the, yeah, okay. the copper, the purple copper. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> it's like it's like the it's like it's a nebulous color, but it's also this really beautiful, like almost a dusty grape color from from the photograph. I like I said, we haven't seen it in person. It's kind of like an an honest grape color, like what what a um not like a modern uh factory farmed grape, like a like a real grape, <laughs> a rustic grape, <laughs> a grape that has seeds in it, still has the seeds in it. Um, no. And then, like the, no, the thank you, <laughs> the silver spout, like it almost has like the texture of uh, the closest thing I could describe it as is like cabbage leaves, I guess. Kind of, I, I don't know. <laughs> and there is there there's like an emblem with like three more of those leaves, mm -hmm, and then the like top. like a almost like a fronded um, three more fronded uh, uh, leaves on top of that. And then behind that emblem is like this geometric. It's, it reminds me of like a boutique. Uh, patterning like something batik. that boutique 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 like Japanese boutique I'm already saying boutique <laughs> boutique <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it, it looks like a pattern that like a mid-century modern like couch might have on it mm -hmm. or something like or that wallpaper but, yeah definitely definitely <laughs> love that but also for me last but not least we have to talk about the silver lobster yeah <laughs> and the ivory handle on top those are just kind of like the cherries on top so to speak <laughs> Lobster on top, yeah. It works. It works. Like this sounds wild, but like it all, it all works. Yeah. So. It doesn't seem like it should go together, but yeah. it, it definitely does. Yes. And I have questions also, about the can lobster. Can I just say, like, does it sound based on the description you've just given? I wonder if if listeners think that it sounds like a coherent object, or if it sounds <laughs> like, or also if it sounds like something that was made in the 19th century. Like, doesn't it sound? Like yeah. wildly postmodern. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And I would, if if you're not looking at the image, listeners, would love to see just like a drawing of what you think it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not sure we did a good job of describing it. No, we did our best. <laughs> so don't look, don't cheat. We just want to see it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, it's an amazing object. It's so this is from this period of like, Tiffany's greatest work. It dates mm. to 1879. 
at this point, like the connection to Japan is very tenuous. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, we started with something and now we've gone through a few different iterations and now we've got something totally different. Yeah. But there's still some Japanese elements like the lobster you mentioned. Mm. Oh, okay. um, you know, the idea of like applying a, a, a decorative animal to the surface of your vessel okay. is really Japanese. Oh, okay. oh, yeah, I guess it is. You can find bugs on not on this piece but on a lot of uh, other pieces of this period you can find insects uh-huh. you know dragonflies and butterflies mm-hmm. you can find uh-huh. lizards and geckos and it leads directly into what we think of as art nouveau mm-hmm. and the idea of like incorporating decaying nature mm-hmm. into art okay which is thought of as being like a very a french innovation and it kind of is but it really filters into france through these works by tiffany yeah so just like giving silver the history of silver its proper place in the canon of art history so it's a chocolate pot which means it's meant for serving hot chocolate which is awesome and i i don't have a chocolate pot and i really could use one yeah (laughs) especially in the middle of winter yeah but what that means is a couple of things so first of all it has to have insulators Mm -hmm. on the handle because if you just made a chocolate pot out of silver or copper or Mm. whatever metal and made the handle out of the same metal and it was all connected together like normal, that handle is going to heat up super hot yeah. as soon yeah. as you You're pour the hot red hand. into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had to put in insulators. So a little, uh, little piece of material that would stop the heat from transferring from the body into the handle. And in this oh. case, it's ivory. Okay, okay. Oh. That explains a little ivory. There's a little two little ivory facets kind of That's right. connecting the handle. On the silver yeah, handle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the same thing you mentioned, the ivory handle on top of the mm-hmm. cover. And so the cover is attached to the body with a hinge. But then if you wanted to lift the cover again, you'd want something that wasn't mm-hmm. burning hot to oh. do that with. So you've got an, a unnecessarily big ivory <laughs> handle on top. <laughs> kind of stuck uh, But it there. looks yeah. pretty cool. It's kind of, a, yeah, it's like a, like a joystick almost. Old, <laughs> old school joystick. Yeah, that's one way to avoid <laughs> calling it phallic. Um, yeah, but it's, it's uh, the whole thing again, it's kind of funky. Like it could, it, I want to say something really quickly about the history mm-hmm. of serving chocolate. Yeah. Because there are chocolate pots made out of silver going back to the 17th century. Um, I think the earliest English silver chocolate pot is uh, 1670, give or take. Okay. You know, back then it was this like wildly exotic commodity Mm -hmm. that nobody really knew what to do with or like what should the cultural norms around it be. The hot chocolate or the pots? Well, both. So like the chocolate comes to Europe and then they're like, how are we going to drink this? <laughs> like, what do we do with it? We, what kind of pot do we use? Like they had coffee pots, but again, coffee was still pretty new. Yeah. Mm. And so it was this like wild West of like serving ware. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and you have to picture it's all the ar- aristocracy because these are the people who can yeah. afford to import the chocolate and the cocoa and so on. And so the richest people in Europe are all trying to, d- to figure out like, what shape of vessel should this amazingly expensive <laughs> thing come out of? First world problems. <laughs> and like they experiment around a bit and find, in the end, it ends up looking a lot like a coffee pot. But there's another wrinkle to this, which has led to some pretty comical experiences for me. Mm-hmm. Because there's 
the thing about serving hot chocolate is like today we have emulsifiers and mm-hmm. like it doesn't you can just like heat it up and serve it but back then they had to whip the chocolate up right before pouring it otherwise it would have congealed and you'd get all the oils mm-hmm. on the top and it would be this like gross slimy mess mm-hmm. and so what that meant was you could prepare the chocolate in the kitchen but you'd still have like out of sight of your fancy guests mm-hmm. but it would still have to be whipped up right there at the table where it's being served. And so they had these implements, these like, they are kind of like whisks mm-hmm. that were called, in England, they call them molinets. And they are meant to be set into the chocolate pot and mm-hmm. then uh, kind of like whipped between your hands, spun between your hands to like whip up the chocolate into this frothy, delicious thing mm-hmm. and then served. And because this was all being done in public, the best molinets were made out of silver. Oh. They weren't made out of, you know, back in the kitchen, you'd have implements made out of wood or we have a wooden one. copper or mm. whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have, no, a, you have, we have a wooden we one. We have the Mexican like style Mexican, wooden one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. They do. They still use them a lot in Mexico mm-hmm. and also in India. Mm. And they're usually wooden. But, you know, if you were having a fancy aristocratic party at your aristocratic house in the English countryside mm-hmm. in 1740... Mm-hmm. You needed a silver molinet. Yeah, it'd be silver, yeah. Got to fit in. And yes. so you got a silver molinet. So these quickly become obsolete mm-hmm. as like the customs change and emulsifiers are added. And so almost all of these molinets were melted down. Mm. There are still a few that survive for whatever reason. And it's really cool to come across one mm-hmm. because it's like, why wasn't this melted? It's like valuable silver that could have been made into coins yeah. you know, or something like you could actually use for something. Mm-hmm. But instead, they kept it around and they were like, oh, this is whatever. This is cool. Like, yeah. we'll keep it. But because they're so rare, people don't know what they are. And so I've even seen an auction house in England, a major auction house, like a prestigious auction house that had one of these in one of their sales, but they cataloged it as a mace. Oh. Like the weapon. Oh. And the way this one was made, it looked (laughs) a little bit like a mace, like kind of ceremonial. Like, but they were like, here's a, here's a weird ass silver mace (laughs) from, you know, 1730. You're going to war with chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And, that's what they sold it as and and we bought it our gallery bought it and mm-hmm. we were like we actually know what this is and it's pretty cool and there's this whole history behind it uh, in my opinion i would rather make chocolate than war so mm, yeah. i think that's a, <laughs> that's a good trade off for everybody now with the lobster do they this is a stupid question do they eat do they, what, was lobster typically served with hot chocolate was that why lobster <laughs> yeah why, I'll why be lobster? honest with you i i am totally mystified okay. by that <laughs> okay uh, you know, like, no, I don't think chocolate and lobster were a regular combination. If they were, I would rather not know about that. I mean, we do, um, we do like uh, chocolate pretzels. Um, bananas. Frozen bananas. Yeah, chocolate frozen bananas. Uh-huh. We, do, we do we do savory chocolate, right? A lot of, there's, I feel like there's a lot of savory. I've, I've had a uh, chocolate covered, some sort of worm. Some, oh, no. Yeah. It wasn't Ooh. bad. Yeah. Was it crunchy? Slightly. Okay. Also kind of gooey. Did the chocolate... Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's fine. Like, so many, yeah. so many countries eat it, and it was it was totally fine. It's just, like, as um, a Westerner, I, you know... I think I would rather just eat a plain worm and then a piece of chocolate. Yeah, well, oh, I, I've ooh, had that, too. I, I will say the chocolate-covered kind is a little better, <laughs> in, my, in my humble opinion, yeah. 
Well, maybe Tiffany should have been putting worms on this chocolate yeah. pot instead of lobsters. No, I think somebody got excited about making some lobsters and mm-hmm. they thought it looked cool. So they stuck it on. It, do, it does look awesome. But you're right. None of this seems like it should go together. But it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And yeah. you were talking about that, that process of the turning the copper purple. How did that happen exactly? Do you do you know like what what did they use? Because you you did send some videos over for us to to which scope were out. awesome. Yeah. to watch the whole process. Yeah. There we know some information about the process mm-hmm. and other things we don't know. And um, you know, it was of course it was a huge trade secret uh, for Tiffany oh, okay, and company. Okay. But there are some really dogged researchers, particularly a curator at the Met named Medill Harvey. Mm-hmm. And she's done some amazing work looking back through the Tiffany archives and trying to deduce both like from the notes that they took, but also from the the objects themselves. Like what were the processes? What mm-hmm. how do they what were they trying to achieve and what did they achieve? Mm-hmm. And one thing that makes it really tricky is like the color changes over time. Oh, you know? Okay. Oh. Like these are really delicate processes. Okay. And over 100, 150 years, you know, the the patination can change pretty dramatically. That makes sense. So like as a dealer, it's a huge thing to look out for when you're mm-hmm. buying an object from this period that it's got good color. Mm-hmm. Like that, it, that makes a big difference to the commercial value of the object. Mm-hmm. This chocolate pot has really amazing. It's like one of the best preserved examples of this particular kind of patina that, mm-hmm. that Tiffany was trying to manufacture. But if you look at a lot of pieces, like you'll see it's totally washed out or it's, it's mm-hmm. like pockmarked or it's, mm-hmm. it's turned like yellow orangish or it's just splotchy across the surface. And, you know, I can't blame the object for that. Like, it's, you know, it's lived a good life. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't show the signs of age? Yeah. But in the very best examples like that chocolate pot, you can really see what they were trying to do. And that makes it a lot easier than to figure out, like, what was actually going on in the workshop. Uh Um, And so, Medill and and some of the Tiffany archivists, uh, like Moira Gallagher... And some silversmiths like uh, Ubaldo Vitali have really worked hard to try to figure out like what was actually done, mm-hmm. what was actually made, what was what did this process actually look like? And yeah, I mean, it's super intricate, super complex, and you know, it it involves all kinds of chemicals, the names of which would frighten <laughs> your listeners, yeah. uh, <laughs> but like you know, copper sulfates and ammonium chloride. It's the kind of stuff that, like, you you probably don't have in your kitchen. I hope. <laughs> hope not, right? The the video you sent us it looked like alchemy. Oh my gosh! It <laughs> like, did. like a wizard yeah. working in there. That giant copper <laughs> yeah. pot, and then just watching the colors change was amazing. Yeah. No, I mean it. Base it literally is alchemy. Yeah. yeah. And there and there are other things like you know we bought uh, not too long ago this coffee pot that was made in 1893 by Tiffany and. It's like it's a beautiful coffee pot in what they call the Saracen style, so it's mm-hmm. very Middle Eastern inspired, and it's got this this incredible enamel work that's like mm-hmm. very pale and delicate and light, and it gives the whole thing this like this very Islamic kind of mm-hmm. look, but it's I don't know, it's really intricately chased and embossed, and it's just a kind of a breathtaking piece. But when we bought it, it was polished up; the body of it was all polished up to a mirror shine, like. Like oh, no. the way you think about silver. Okay. 
And so we just assumed that's what it's supposed to look like. But it always looked a little bit pale, a little bit mm-hmm. washed out. And then we came across this article from 1893 when this piece was shown in Chicago at the Columbian Exposition. And the person who wrote this article was writing about all the Tiffany silver at the Columbian mm-hmm. Exposition. And they said, you know, they, they were admired the patented dark gunmetal color of the silver. And we realized that this silver, this coffee pot was not meant to be a mirror polished silver. It was meant to be a sort of tarnished, dark gray color, which is what happens when you don't take care of your silver, right? Like it tarnishes. But in this case, it was intentional. And that was supposed to create this great color contrast with the pale hues of the enamels. Mm -hmm. And so, we actually artificially tarnished it. Oh, nice. Um, which you can do using like sulfuric compounds, which uh-huh. smell like absolute garbage. <laughs> um, we have a river that smells like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it just had this imag- magical effect. Like snap your fingers and suddenly this piece looks the way it was meant to look and it mm-hmm. just sang. Wow. You'll have to send us a photograph of that. We'd love to see it. Yeah. We are, will, we're, we're texture heads here, I guess, like art, <laughs> artist texture heads. I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're very pro texture. Nice. Pro patina. Yeah, um, pro patina. So, <laughs> so, so you were able to restore that coffee pot, but can you restore patina? Like if this, mm. if someone were to find this coffee, coffee pot chocolate pot like a hundred years from now and it does not look like it does now would they be able to to restore the patina Mm. and like how close could you get it to looking that purple uh not at all Mm. i know we're talking about copper but like with 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 all kinds of metals like patina is super subtle and super important Mm. like the worst thing that you can do to a beautiful piece of antique silver is to over polish it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it happen so many times that you've got this object and somebody just goes at it with elbow grease and okay. they like mm-hmm. they want it to look like a mirror and they get what they want. It looks like a mirror and it looks like it was made yesterday and it's mm-hmm. like all it feels like the whole history of it has kind of been erased. Mm-hmm. Naturally over time and in the course of daily use these objects will pick up little imperfections Mm -hmm. quote unquote that Mm -hmm. are like you know tiny little pockmarks in the surface they're not sometimes not even visible to the naked eye but they affect the way that light reflects and Mm -hmm. refracts off of it and so over time these accumulate and they can transform the color of the object into something that is just magical that Mm -hmm. is like dark and rich and deep and complex Mm -hmm. and all of that can be ruined in a incredibly short amount of time by somebody who's like overzealous wish with a brillo pad so with the copper it's it's the same but even worse because it's so much more delicate and Mm. and sensitive you know it's just incredibly rare to find a piece with a color like this one Mm. like this chocolate pot that's uh, again like the day it came out of the workshop that's like a one in a thousand kind of effect i said dusty grape but i'm (laughs) sickened to it but it's also like (laughs) It's like the most beautiful dusty group. Yeah, I appreciate it like a thousand times more now knowing yeah. what I know, what I've just learned about silver. So thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. We need to uh, have you come along with us on a journey to a museum so you can explain <laughs> a lot of the the objects we look at and just are mesmerized by. Yeah, sometimes yeah, the plaques well, don't tell you enough. Just sometimes <laughs> I have so many I mean, questions. It's a, yeah, it's impossible. It's like, you know, you could write a book about an mm-hmm. object like this. The good news is that it doesn't, it's not just museums, you know, there are dealers and galleries that have pieces 
like this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty rare to have a piece like this, but it does happen. And like in our shop, you can just ring the doorbell and come on in and we've got like an incredible array of hundreds of objects from all different periods and styles and we're there to just hang out and and to answer questions about it and show you (laughs) things that you haven't seen before and you can pick it up and hold it and hell you know if you're thirsty i'll pour you a glass of water in a 16th century beaker you're gonna take uh, a mace and make us some uh, chocolate hot chocolate (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) personalized experience i really appreciate that well, Ben, thank you. Uh, th- th- this was a journey. We really enjoyed it. Tell us more about your podcast. Where where would you have our listeners like start if there was like one episode you mm. would like them to check out first? So again, the, the podcast is all about storytelling. So mm-hmm. each episode focuses on a particular object and like all of the wild and mm-hmm. unpredictable and and often like beautiful and and surprising stories that revolve around these things and what mm-hmm. they can tell us about where they came from and what they've experienced and who's interacted with them. I think the work that I'm proudest of is actually a three-part series that we did called The Story of Belazare. Okay. And it was about a painting, um, which is now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but which connects us to this incredibly challenging and intricate and troubling history set in New Orleans. And it reveals so much about society, not just when it was painted in the 1830s, mm-hmm. but decade by decade ever since, you know, the, the experiences that this painting has had, the trials that it's been through and how it ended up where it did, it sends chills up my spine. So look wow. that one up and yeah. if you like it, you know, keep listening. I haven't gotten to that one yet. I started at the most recent and kept going, but we will definitely jump to that <laughs> one. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's worth skipping to. But, right, right. <laughs> but the other thing is, like, I would just say for listeners, you know, we've covered so many different types of objects, so many mm-hmm. different periods from, you know, from ancient Egypt and ancient Rome to, you know, c- even contemporary works mm-hmm. and everything in between. So if there's some period of history that you're interested in or some type of object that you're curious about, look it up. There's a pretty decent chance we've done an episode about something kind of like that. Yeah, my hope is for it to be like fun and educational and eventually inspire people to look at objects that they might not have encountered encountered otherwise and like think about them in a new way. Absolutely. Yep. Looking, thinking, we love that. Making, <laughs> yes. Looking, thinking, making. <laughs> yep. Sounds like a new Daft Punk song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's got to put the vocal effects on there. <laughs> A little auto-tune. <laughs>